0: They're like, if I can show you I care, that's going to make me a great advisor. No, show me that you're competent. And in fact, we think about trust. Trust me to put your best interest first. That's great. But probably more importantly, or just as importantly, I need to trust that you have the capacity and capability to actually markedly help me. This
1: is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Tom Riemann. Tom Riemann. All the way from sunny Boca Raton, where they don't have winners. How are you doing, my friend? Welcome to Bridging the Gap. Hey Matt, uh, I'm doing really well, and thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking
0: forward to our conversation.
1: Oh, I'm stoked about this. I mean, we were talking before we started recording. I think that just your experience in the space, just with you know warehouses and in the RA space, and now with the wealth tech company. And from a practice management standpoint, from a sales standpoint, I think you bring a, a vast knowledge to the audience, and I'm really excited to dive into and, and explore. You know, before we get into a lot of the the exploration of of the meat of the podcast, I always like to get to know the guest a little bit more. And like I said, I was able to do some research on you, but I'm always curious of the person. And so, how I always like to to understand people is I always just say, "What did the 13 year old Tom Riemann want to be when he grew up?"
0: Yeah, you know, Matt, and I, obviously I listened to a few of your podcasts before, I knew this question was coming up. And I'll tell you, I, my 13-year-old self didn't know exactly what he wanted to be. But I will say this, my 13-year-old self was maybe a little bit of an outlier. At 13, I was more interested in listening to classical and jazz than I was to rock and roll. And so I think what I take from that is I've always had a really deep interest in kind of intellectual depth and intellectual complexity. I grew up in a house it, with a lot of science around it. And so that's something that's always stuck with me. And I think that's in v- many ways what's ultimately informed my career and my career path.
1: Yeah. You know, it's sometimes hard for people to envision what they what their 13 year self wanted to be or remember what it was. And and I think that the surroundings of your life drive who you are. And so talk to us about how from 13 to where you are now, tell us a little bit about that journey and that that road that you've gone on to get to running practice Intel and, and this wealth tech company that you started. Yeah, Matt. I mean,
0: listen, that's it's a bit of a long road, right? I'm a pretty far away from 13 years old. But Interestingly enough, actually at 13, I was, a, I was an introvert. I was a real wallflower. And again, you know, around my, my father was a physician. We had books in the house around quantum theory and all sorts of interesting things. So I was really loved to read and just kind of steeped into wanting to know how and why things work the way they did. And then as I got a little older, went to college, and I took a little bit of a circuitous path through college, but I kind of emerged, went from an introvert to very much an extrovert, ended up getting an undergraduate degree in marketing, ended up going into a few sales roles. Um, And then about five, six, seven years into that, I found myself utterly bored, right? Just completely and utterly bored with the process of selling. And by the way, part of that was being an advisor. And I say an advisor. And of course, that's a misnomer. All I was was a variable universal life salesperson for an insurance broker dealer. But I woke up one day and I just like, I am so bored. And so I ended up going back to graduate school. And that graduate experience really transformed, was transformative in my life. I ended up getting a master's in organizational learning. And it was steeped in first Austrian economics. So the whole idea that the key to a really successful organizations, economies, and societies was to link disparate knowledge. But it also was grounded in, and I'm going to throw out a couple of really big words here, epistemology, which is the science of knowledge, and hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. Now, you take those two disciplines, that is advice. Science of knowledge, how do you know? How do you transfer knowledge? How do you extract knowledge? It's the very crux of what advice is. And that fundamentally transformed my career and the way I see the world. Came out of graduate school and actually ended up with a training firm. And I, if anybody in your audience was ever a wholesaler, they're going to know this firm. It was called The Fusion Group. And they have trained thousands and thousands of wholesalers for all the firms. And I did that for about four years. Great experience of learning how to drive change and very high ego, hard to change people. And I got a really wide swath experience uh, across the industry. And I came out of that recognizing that the entire industry was saying the exact same thing. And we were incredibly product centric. And it made me think, and this, I had this aha, and this is now some almost 25 years ago, this aha that there must be a better way, that there are, there's such a thing as a true advisor. The vast majority of the industry is not executing on that. So how can we transform the industry? And that's really what was the bug in the seed that got planted. And I poked at and I pushed at and I prodded out through my own firm through four years as part of the learning and development group at J.P. Morgan, part of the J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I was a wholesaler for eight years, head of practice management for another asset manager. And then all that culminated some three, four years ago, pushing, 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 Landing at JD Power. Now all of a sudden I had this framework of there's there's a continuum of, of advice. And if we think about advice from the standpoint of there's some great advisors out there, and we all know that there's a handful of advisors we would all work with if we think of all the advisors in the world. There's a large swath of advisors that are well-intentioned, hardworking, right? They do human's work. And there's a bunch of advisors we'd probably run away really quickly. Like we know that experientially. And I was able to model it through consumer data at JD Power, published it extensively. And that really was the springboard for Practice Intel. Such an
1: interesting journey and and one that that, you know, it in each step, it's like there's some curiosity, there's a there's a thirst of of learning something new and exploration that goes into it. I'm curious on something that you you mentioned there because you know you said about 20 years ago you thought that there was this there was this focus on product. It was like product-centric, an industry that's product centric. And there's better, we could be better than that and be more holistic and experienced. And it took you a long time of more exploration and and poking, as you said, and prodding to to get to that point of of, of figuring out how you can make that impact. How do you think the industry from your perspective has has evolved from that state 20 years ago? Because I think that there's some people that would say that we are still product-centric or 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 specific-centric on, on delivery of, of just investment management, not necessarily holistic, experiential, or client servicing. Where do you put it, given that you've been kind of focusing on it for 20 mm. years since, the, since you had that reckoning?
0: Yeah, so listen, we've improved. It's gotten better, unequivocally. We know that. The narrative in the industry... We see firms, we see the insurance broker dealers, take one, for example, equitable, that is now uh, has removed all proprietary requirements, which is one of the killers of anything, you know, client centric and holistic. So we've improved. But here's the challenge. And this is what my time at J.D. Power and the modeling I, I was able to do, the team I led, is that the consumers are saying very, very clearly that we are still falling vastly short of the ideal. When we measure out what we'll all call the key advice attributes, the things that make advice, advice, we were able to model out seven of them, that less than 15% of clients say advisors are delivering those in aggregate. But when they do, NPS, Net Promoter Score Advocacy is in the 90s. It is unequivocal. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. It is driving organic growth to the nth degree. Now, where were we 20 years ago? It was probably less. But I think one of the challenges, Matt, and I was, talking to, I was talking to Steve Sandusky about this, is there's not enough people in our industry necessarily that are willing to really state the truth. You know, the old emperor has no clothes statement, right? Everything's good. 97% retention rate. We're all good. It's like, no, we aren't. And anybody in the industry that knows, knows advisors and really knows the experience that's being delivered. Listen, well-intentioned people, we have great advisors out there, but we still fall vastly short of the full promise of what advice can deliver.
1: You bring up a few points, and I, I wanna touch on a, to, uh, on a lot of them there. You mentioned something when you were doing training, when you're training wholesalers, you mentioned, that you know you have high ego, hard to change people. And there's something that kind of it feels like there's some similarities to this mentality of trying to change the advisory business or advisors to to adopt this new mentality. Because to your point right there, right, everything's been good. Ninety seven percent retention. So what from your experience training the wholesalers, what what can we learn from that to help? Train and change mentalities or shift mentalities, not maybe change, but shift mentalities of the industry as a whole for advisors to realize what clients really want from that standpoint and get them away from what they think they want,
0: yeah. So I like to look to organizational science for such great research and thinking that comes out of organizational science. And by the way, you notice that I'm referencing things outside of our industry. And I think that's important because what we're doing inside of our industry, You know, the old phrase is we are where we are today because of everything we've done up to today. So if we're going to expect to truly be transformative, it makes sense to definitely look into other, other industries. So two things. One, we've got to provide what's what we call that is an irrefutable moment of truth. So that's the beauty of consumer data. So the narrative that I'm sharing now about the dearth of really great advisors and the the fact is the majority of advisors are still operating as a sales profession. That's the same aha I had 25 years ago. But now I can show vast consumer research where consumers are saying that very thing. So when you have an irrefutable hard data that provides that irrefutable moment of truth, number one, and then number two, what are the consequences of that? So, you know, we talk about the fact when you think about uh, we measure something called the relationship quality index and the higher that RQI, which is NPS, loyalty, trust, overall experience and value for fees, all, all rolled together into an, into an algorithm. When that number is really high, you have embedded growth, right? Something really great. You have not only embedded growth in the context of advocacy, but you also have, you have metrics that are attributing value and the quality and value to the experience as well. Right? So real growth. Mm. If that number is low, that's embedded at tr- uh, risk, both attrition and regulatory risk, very real attrition and regulatory risk. So when you can provide that irrefutable moment of truth with hard data and the consequences, that opens people's eyes up very, very quickly
1: hmm. And so when you see that, I guess what is the pushbacks that you usually get? I'm trying to think about like in the advisor's eyes because you know I see the data but I don't necessarily want to believe it like if i if I believe like if I, you know, I see that data and I've still been growing and I, or I've at least maintained. And, and it's like this idea, you know, you think about, you know, behavioral psychology or behavioral finance and cognitive biases. It's like, oh, if, if it's not broke, why fix it is kind of the mentality. And it's hard for me to make adjustments for something that I could be happening in the future, but I haven't seen a reality of it happening in the past. So how, how, you know, I see the data, but it may not be realized in like lost clients yet, but potentially it does. So how how do you help navigate that process to overcome that burden with those two data points from that standpoint?
0: Yeah. So first of all, there's always going to be a group of people that won't change. And we want to yeah. recognize that. And then secondly, you know, it's like well, sometimes we have comments where advisors say, They don't want to measure. They don't want to find out what their clients think about the advice experience they deliver. And my response is that's because they already know and they just don't want to have it put in their face. Right. It's going to be less than great. You know, I I think the answer answer just falls in incremental recognition of the need to change. Like anything, it needs to be incremental. You have that moment of truth. You recognize that maybe what you're doing so there's there's a behavioral uh, there's a behavioral bias called the Dunning Kruger effect that suggests we believe our ability is much greater than it is in actuality and mm-hmm. so we, we we see data that contradicts what we think our ability is it starts to chip away a little bit and it's a careful balance between crushing somebody and helping them get better so it it it's not only about giving them the data and the hard that irrefutable moment of truth and that knowing with certainty what's going on, it's giving them a path forward as well to actually improve. And that's something we do, right? Because it's not, it's one thing to say, listen, Matt, you know what? You're really a lousy person as opposed to saying, you know, you're not very good at this. Let's help you get better.
1: Yeah, it's it's small incremental wins, right? How do you build and stack the wins on top of each other? I think that that's such a great great yeah. point. Of you know, this is where it's going. This is the small things incrementally that we can do. And when you look back five, ten years in the in the past, you're going to see how much you've changed. Now, I'm curious. You know, going back to some of the the earlier statements that you made, you know, you talked about some of the differences between what clients want necessarily and what advisors think that clients want and Mm -hmm. you know there's sometimes that separation but when it's when it's aligned like it's 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 a it's a remarkable value and it's a it's a driver for growth what are what is it that the client wants from that standpoint. And what is it that the advisor sometimes thinks that they want? Where is that gap? What are the two yeah. different like where are the gaps? And then what is the merger? What does the 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 symbiotic marriage look like there?
0: So so one way to look at that is, is the difference between the client experience and the advice experience. We all know it as an industry, there's just a continual drumbeat about improving and delivering a great client experience. And and the way I like to define that is the difference between that and the advice experience is imagine walking into a restaurant you're greeted warmly, it's a really nice environment, nice table, everything's clean, there's good music playing in the background. That's the client experience. But the advice experience or the core experience is really the most important thing. So you're at that table, you order something and then the food hits the table. If that food isn't spot on, that is the core experience or in our business, the advice experience, everything around the client experience doesn't matter. Right, and you can flip that on its head. You can go to a hole in the wall. In fact, it's known like there's a whole thing on diners, drive-ins, and dives. Right, it's about going to hole in the walls that where the ambiance and the client experience isn't necessarily you know stellar, but the food, that core experience, is out of the world. Right, and that's what brings people back again and again. So I think the differences here is advisors are trained and taught. It's about the client experience, about responsiveness, it's about you know, being liked, all those things. What clients really want is great advice. And the context of the advice attributes that were identified through the J.D. Power Research and that we allow advisors to measure at their practice level are, is the advice comprehensive? And not comprehensive from our standpoint as an industry, but from the client standpoint. And that's going to vary depending on where and who the client is. Does the advisor have my best interest in mind? Does the advisor... Uh, respect my risk tolerance. Does the advisor understand me, my values, goals, and aspirations? Do I as a client understand the fees I'm paying? By the way, that particular attribute, and this is all published data, 60% of clients can't say with certainty they know and understand the fees that they pay, Mm -hmm. which is scary. And is there an effective financial plan? And is the advisor kind of really connected to my life, right? Mm -hmm. That is what clients want. And unfortunately, Almost eighty-five, actually more than eighty-five percent of of clients say their advisor is not delivering on all of those. Hmm. Mm. I want to dive
1: into a couple of those. I really love the the comprehensive one. I think that comprehensive is such an interesting one. I was just doing some. I was just looking over at the Schwab benchmarking study for some preparation materials of some a meeting I have coming up. And, you know, everybody says they do comprehensive financial planning. And then I go, I know a lot of the people that are in there and I, I know what their financial plan is. They do kind of cursory looks over and mm-hmm. from a client perspective, and I know it's unique, but what is comprehensive? Like, what is the expectation of comprehensive? Because I think that we use that word so loosely, but yet we may not be delivering on it at all in, in the eyes of the client. So Matt, do you have an advisor?
0: Uh,
1: myself, which okay. I'm not a great advisor for You're, me right. at all. I'm a ter- I, I'm looking. I am actively looking for a new advisor for my stuff. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now it's uh, like
0: the barber who cuts their own hair, right? Or the cobbler who yeah, yeah. does their own yeah. shoes. No, yeah. understood. I'm right. good at telling people what to do. I'm yeah, not great right. at doing it myself. Right. Yeah. So I, I'll answer that because I have an advisor, and he's a phenomenal advisor. Just he's he would fall hard right on this continuum, this advice experience continuum. So listen, comprehensive. Again, it goes back to helping people make really good financial decisions that align with their values, goals, and aspirations. So there are you know, I've never actually said it. I, I use that phrase because I think that's the definition of advice for us as an industry, helping people make good decisions. And by the way, that's, that's differentiated from selling, which is simply uh, getting people to act on your recommendations, very distinct difference in process, but it's helping people make those decisions around those things they value and they aspire to, right? So it's going to be a bunch of things. You know, if you don't budget, it's not comprehensive. Of course you're going to do retirement planning. If there's kids, you're going to do college planning. If there's, you know, if there's going to be some semblance of estate planning, at least wills, right? Maybe some legacy planning, but it's ultimately providing that framework to allow clients to navigate from where they are now to a vast, vast uncertainty of the future. And to be able to make decisions as they navigate forward effectively,
1: you know, it's it's interesting because when I think of framework, right? When I think of framework, I think about a it, it's not necessarily the tactical this is what we need to go do. We need to do a Roth conversion. We need yeah. to set up an estate plan, et cetera. It's more of setting up a a a mental model almost to where, the client knows how to make decisions on their own mm-hmm. based off of an understanding of where they're going, right? And it's a matter of giving the tools to enable and empower as opposed to maybe confuse. And and not. And I think we judge comprehensive based on, hey, I gave you this full tactical mm-hmm. list of all this information, but break it down to me so I know a simple mental model that I can act on when I'm deciding whether I want to buy this car or not. Or how I should think about investing my bonus, et cetera, from that standpoint to based on the framework. Is that a fair analysis?
0: It is. And you actually just hit the nail on the head. So I, I said earlier, there's a difference between or there, you know, there's the sales profession and the advice profession. And the goal, our mission, our vision is to advance the advice profession so more people can realize the full potential of financial advice, which, by the way, can have a profound impact on not just the client, their family their extended family, the community. I mean, there's a tremendous ripple effect to great financial advice. James Lee, president of the FBA board of directors, and we're fortunate to have him on our advisory board, refers to financial advice as the fourth great profession, right? Great professions, engineering, the original ones were engineering, medicine, and, and law, basically allowed society to prosper, right? This is really big. So when you sell, think about it, Selling is no matter whether you're you're a true salesman, like an expert salesman, like just here's what I got, let me pitch it to you. Or you're even using the physician model, which may sound more consultative and more in-depth and more client-centric, but it's still me asking you questions, taking that information, coming back with a prescription, and you deciding amongst those options. That's selling. And we talk about this actually very distinctly in our advisor development content because if we're going to move people right on this continuum help them deliver a better advice experience drive more organic growth we got to help them not only know where they are but actually execute on what is fundamentally a different process mm. so advice and we I mentioned before outside industry organizational science is the home of process consulting it's 50 years in making academic practical application vetted to the nth degree And that is the perfect model for the advice process, which is simply a collaborative, co-creative process. So you and I, you're the client, I'm the advisor. My job is to help you understand everything I know about advice, financial planning, et cetera. Your job is the client, to help me understand everything about you, your values, goals, aspirations. I'll never know everything about you. You'll never know as much as I do about me but you navigate forward. So when you come point to a decision point, you, the client is going, I get it. I see the options. I see the ramifications. I still don't understand that. Tell me a little more about that. Like, what would you do? But ultimately when I make a decision, I know why I'm making the decision. And when you make a decision with that kind of certainty and understanding those decisions stick mm-hmm. and they stick hard, right? Yeah. That is the advice profession Yeah. in a nutshell.
1: It's super interesting. I think that there's there's something, you know, we grew up in a profession of just being salesmen and women, and now we're moving to being a little bit more, you know, touchy-feely softer, right? There's a softer <laughs> side of it, and it doesn't feel comfortable for a lot of the people that start, that that really kind of pioneered the the growth, especially of the RIA segment. And you think about how the broker-dealer world got involved back, you know, even mm-hmm. in the 1920s, et cetera. It was a sales profession. We, were, we mm-hmm. were sloshing, you know, the new IPOs and the new stocks to buy, et cetera. You mentioned another aspect inside of that seven, which was connected to life, connected to life. That's an interesting one. Mm. I'm curious, what does that mean in the eyes of the client and how does it look when it's done really well?
0: Mm. So I'll, and by the way, I got to go back and say something. We're still a sales profession. And even if we're more touchy feely, we're just touchy feely salespeople. Right. I mean, so that there's a distinct process difference. And also, the the goal of selling is to get people to act on our recommendations. So, no matter how physician, client, no matter how consultative you are, if that's where you end up, you're still selling. Whereas advice is helping people make good decisions. So, that is the crux, Matt. If we're going to, like we talked earlier before we even started rolling here about advancing the advice profession, we help the advice. The great thing about it is it's process oriented. Right, so it's not like you know you got to you have to nuance it, and you got to figure out how to be really artful. I always argue that I said this at a Tiburon conference early last year that to do really well, to be really good at selling, you got to be artful. You got to be talented. To be really good at the advice process, you just have to execute the process. Right, the process is it, which is so cool. So, okay, now. Connected. This whole idea of connected to life, so there's two ways to look at this. We can look at it from the, what we actually measure and then what I consider the absolute sort of colloquial definition of which is where I'll start, and that is when your advisor is first call after family. Something happens. Some big decision needs to be made. Something occurs. For us, pick up the phone and call Paul. Honestly, with practice intel, obviously went through some serious thought with my co-founder, Kathy Cottrell, who happens to be my wife as well but incredibly right with a PhD in organizational psychology understands what we do. She's our chief of staff and she operates an exemplary in that role. She's fantastic. We were as we we're working through the dynamics of it. One of the first calls was to Paul. Hey, this is what we're thinking. What are the risks? And he not only he not only helped us sort of align with what can you risk, but he had a lot of experience <laughs> in 2008 so he was a CPA I'm not called that in Canada, but a CPA in Canada, left that career. He was building condos in Miami in 2008. Boom, big real estate bust, right? And So he experienced working with partners. He gave me some invaluable advice in how I set up my partnership agreements and things like that. So anyway, so first call after family. The way we measure it is three ways. There's three questions we ask. One, what kind of frequency do you have? How often do you communicate? And if it's two or less, like you don't get that, you don't get that check mark next to connected to life. There's got to be some level of frequency of communication. Secondly, are you satisfied with that level of communication? Thirdly, and probably most importantly, we ask: Do you consult your financial advisor on important life decisions? And so that's how we define that connected to life.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting point to focus on. Because I think that everybody says, and, and I was reading, there's there's multiple tests out there. And advisors, if you were to ask advisors to tell them about, tell me about the last vacation each of your clients went on or what, or what their kind of purpose statement is or whatever it may be, it's probably pretty hard. Because I think mm-hmm. that the conversations tend to always be around investments and, 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 mm-hmm. and wealth, right? As opposed to purpose and life. And, and I think that that's where this is going to, which is such a good... Point to, to focus on. And you know, you've you've mentioned multiple times, not in this conversation, but in, in past things that I've read on you and, and, and listened to is you know about KPIs and and how the advisor community has maybe misaligned KPIs or key performance mm-hmm. indicators for their business. And you know, I think we're talking now about some of these aspects, but what is misunderstood with regards to the KPIs that the community uses today? And and how should we rethink about that? in the future to align our key performance indicators of our firm to what clients want in that advisor-centric model that you, you mentioned?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, one way to put it is the vast majority of metrics in our industry are adve- advisor metrics about their clients. What we do is we provide client metrics about the advisor so it's it it spins it and provides an entirely new lens as to look to look at advisor performance and i'll get to your specific answer in a moment and that's actually one of the things that has so many people really intrigued i mean deeply intrigued by what we're doing because it's a it's a new way of evaluating advisor performance that's not aum or production or size of household or funnel, or close rate, or all those other things that are absolutely sales metrics, right? But when we look at a couple of the critical, and and by the way, using those metrics are important. They're still valuable metrics, but there are a couple of metrics around the client experience that were definitely flawed from our perspective. And that is the idea of retention and satisfaction. So as you may know, uh, I think it was 90, the latest Schwab study showed 97% Let me back up. Advisors said that they retained 97% of their clients. First of all, it's a self-reported number. So right off the bat, I'm like, "Eh," I look a little cross-eyed at that, but that's okay. And many will say, because of that, that says they're doing a great job. And the flip side of that, generally what you find is retention, which is really loyalty metric, and satisfaction are highly correlated. So if people are not leaving, there's retention, that means they're satisfied. Hey, if they're satisfied, all is good. Well, not so. So think about satisfaction. Satisfaction is absolutely a function of expectation. So um, do you like to eat, Matt? you big eater? I, I do, yes. Yeah. Ditto, yeah. ditto, by the way. Yeah. So imagine someone who happens to like a particular Italian chain restaurant. Really satisfied, really likes it, loves the lasagna, whatever. And they're like, wow, this is the best. And then you go up to Boston and you take them to the North End. And then you take them into a real Italian restaurant and they're like, oh, that's what it's supposed to be like. All of a sudden, the satisfaction, expectations go through the roof, satisfaction with the previous experience degrades or evaporates almost instantly, right? And I'd suggest that's where we are with our industry is a lot of consumers don't know what great advice looks like, this co-creative, collaborative process, right? Mm. They think an investment or financial planning, consultative salesperson is what it's supposed to be. But the moment they see that new experience, whether it's instant, you know, very instantaneous or whether it's just slowly over time, you're going to see a tremendous amount of attrition. So the way I frame it is 97% retention rate could be great. Could could be saying they have a phenomenal value proposition, compelling, differentiated, or it may be masking significant attrition risk. Which is it? Mm. Uh, if I ask an advisor, so which is it? How do you know what your advisors think about what you do? Like, I bet you do a good job, but how do you know with certainty? And guess what? Almost none of them actually know with certainty. Mm. And
1: so, I want to go back to something we talked about a little bit earlier because I think you're 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 onto something here. And yeah, I think that it's hard. It's it's everybody's like, well, I just, I just see the numbers and and that's why. And, and I, I, I think there's two aspects of this that I see as I, as I listen to this. And, and, and I think that they're both interesting in, in nature is um, one is that, you know, you mentioned clients don't quite know what's on the other side. They don't quite know what that expectation is right they don't know what that italian in the north end is like because they never experienced it Mm -hmm. and so there's there's this like you know that needs to happen and so in some advisors minds they say well that i mean that's gonna be so long like how like they just this if we're providing them then that's what they need so we're meeting their expectation so they would have to leave and they would have to have some reason to leave Mm -hmm. the the second point is is that i want to go back to something we talked about earlier which is about training and you have you've had all these programs about training. And so I'm curious on that one point on clients, like what's going to be that impetus moment. I think that that's always been the challenge as well. When I was selling technology and wealth management is that there was no need to change. There was no like, because like the business is great. I can stay where I am today. And this is what's beautiful about our industry is one of the industries where we can grow without doing anything. Right. We just stay, you know, stay committed to the markets and then over 10 years, our revenues of our firm will grow organically without adding a new client as long as we just keep clients so we have this one thing that like that has to move to change people so i want to have that question answered and then the second question is is that how do we best train advisors to shift this mentality if we don't have that impetus moment if we don't have that day of reckoning that's just going to come and like disrupt everybody at that point
0: right well so and it comes back to the irrefutable moment of truth right but you hit another really critical point, and that is organic growth. So, right over 10 years, market the market growth will increase their revenues, even if they don't add new clients. But we've also seen chinks in that armor. We we see as organic growth really declines to flat, to non-existent, with with both distribution outflows, with challenging market environments. It creates a pretty daunting future view about growth if you're not growing organically. And I will say that advocacy is at the core of growing organically. So when you think, going back to that retention number of 97%, and I said, you know, satisfaction, function of expectations, they may attrition. But the other way to to juxtapose that is to say you have 97% retention rate and flat organic growth. So you have people who are not leaving, but they're not referring. What does that say about your value proposition? Right. Mm -hmm. So Ron Carson, I love this quote. I heard him say this earlier last year organic growth is the truth. Organic growth is a reflection of your value prop. If you have no organic growth, means the marketplace is saying you're not very compelling, you're not very differentiated. So I think this leads them to like, how do we get people off the dime on this? Organic growth is important. And listen, there's a, if you are someone who's, making three, four, 500,000 bucks a year. You're in the last five, 10 years of your career. You play golf two days a week. Fine, got it. But we have a really large swath of advisors that do want to grow. And we've got a backfill as well with these younger advisors. So we have the, you know, the, the data and the, the attributes that we measure are the key drivers of organic growth. So we can prove, we, we like to say we've cracked the code to organic growth. So there's an impetus right there. Do you want to systematically drive organic growth? I heard someone say recently, you need to have an intentional growth mindset. And I thought to myself, yeah, but what does that mean? Like, okay, I got to market, I got to promote, I got to ask for referrals. Instead, you need to have an intentional value mindset. How are you improving your value to where that advocacy is going up, where you're delivering a more valuable and higher quality experience. Now, again, the beauty of what we're doing, this is stuff that never could be measured. We can measure that now. And when you can measure it, you can say, Matt, you may think you're doing it, but guess what? Your clients are saying you're not. Mm -hmm. So do you wanna do something about it? All Mm -hmm. right, so that's the first part. The training question was the second part, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very good. I I, I like
1: to load up my questions because I I I forget them. So I have to put them on air.
0: Matt, I know we only do this for about an hour. Fair to say we could probably talk for like three hours on all this stuff, Easy right? Easy enough. Yes, um, for sure. So this is where this is where process comes in. I I, I mentioned it wasn't in our conversation, but I was so I was an athlete, you know, once an athlete, always an athlete, right? But I was an athlete in my younger days in terms of competitive sports. And process is really key to performance. You can control process, you can impact performance and you can affect outcomes but it's process that is actually the only thing you control that then leads down that line so what we do is we provide process oriented training development so it's not just like come on matt be your best self have the mindset of a you know a great advisor and you're going to be that i was of age in the 80s positive mental attitude and it was like you know just believe it and think it and you'll be it don't get me wrong, um, the right mindset is critical, and that's where that you know kind of that proof for advice, the case for advice is so critical. But otherwise, you need distinct, step-by-step, repeatable, scalable process for you and the other 100,000 that want to change.
1: Yeah, I think that that's uh, the process side, and I think that that's what this industry is constantly getting better at it especially as we're businessizing uh, yeah. becoming more of a, a, a mature industry where we're not all wearing the same hats and you've got executives that are running positions that aren't sales mm-hmm. oriented just because you're becoming we're becoming real business I, I have two more questions before I close out my final two questions that I want to get to and I'm just curious I, this is just me like I, I just being a, a curiosity lover is have you seen in the data that when you survey clients, is there any correlation between lower lower satisfaction ratings? And I think I know where your answer is going to go with this, but I have to ask it just before I won't be able to. I won't be able to sleep. Okay. Do you see lower satisfaction ratings relative to other periods when the markets are down? Hmm. Does the markets drive the the view of the of the as much as we say performance doesn't matter and all this other stuff matters? Mm-hmm. Like, are you seeing any correlation or, or you know, differentiation in the data based on market downturn at times when you survey versus non?
0: Yeah. So now I'll answer by quoting J.D. Power research. So everything I've talked about J.D. Power has been published is in the public record research, right? So that's part of it. And when you look at the last twenty plus years that J.D. Power has been asking those questions or measuring satisfaction, they refer to as overall satisfaction, that it tracks market performance almost to a T. Now, what does that say? It doesn't say good things, it says the client is basically placing the entire value prop, the entire value of the advisor on market performance. What you'll note though, is if you think about delivering that higher quality experience, and this is also published data, the higher that quality experience, the more of those attributes that we mentioned that I mentioned that are being delivered on, the less correlated that is to being dissatisfied with portfolio outcomes. So you start so to not, separate. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's not as uh, sorry to cut you off, but because no. like this is something that I've really been intrigued by over the past couple of years is that it's not necessarily trying to change or shift the mindset of clients away from performance it's a matter of saying performance has a, is a stack that's really high in terms of your value and you've got to go and try to layer up all of these different blocks to hopefully have them higher because you're doing them so much better to where they outshine performance it doesn't mean they're not going to get upset with performance but hopefully that becomes less of a determinant or driver of action whether it's leaving you selling whatever it may be because you've layered up all of these other verticals with you know Connected to life and comprehensive and, and all that type of stuff. That's really the name of the game is stack more blocks against performance as opposed to shifting away from performance. Focus on the on stacking as many blocks as you can control.
0: Yeah, it's really about redefining your value proposition. So, you know, so much of industry training and I see this, you know, I've been a consumer of industry training for 25 plus years is around articulating your value proposition. And we go, no, 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 no. It's about you have to craft and articulate a better value prop. You just can't take the same thing and say it a little better or better yet, Matt, if I tell you my story and how I grew up in this environment, how it made me want to be an advisor and that makes me such a great advisor then isn't true. Uh, or, Or this idea that I have to show you that I care That's one of the classic ones. Right. I I was having a conversation with my own advisor at the end of the year and we were working through some things and we worked through some really critical like decision points. And we got to the end and I said, man, Paul, this is great. And and this is an advisor that we treat as family. We love him. He loves us. And and I got to the end and I said, so great, you know, that we care about it so much. And he said, you know what, Tom? What's most important, and I have the capability and the capacity to be a great advisor, the caring is the icing on the cake. And what happens in our industry is people flip that upside down. They're like, mm-hmm. if I can show you I care, that's going to make me a great advisor. No, show me that you're competent. And in fact, we think about trust. That word trust is so critical. But what if I'm, if an advisor or a client trusts me to not, rip you off. Trust me to put your best interest first. That's great. But probably more importantly or just as importantly, I need to trust that you have the capacity and capability to actually markedly help me. Right. Competence
1: competence and consistencies are the two of the four C's of trust, right? Competence and consistency is so huge in terms of building trust and that they get a consistent experience. And even if you don't know the answer, that you know how to get the answer and you know how to relay it back to get to the point. And I think that's so big. You know, just real quick, I'm interested because I listened to a podcast that you're on with uh, Preston Cherry, the Financial Planning Podcast. And there's a point in there that you talked about with regards to this balance in, between human and digital and how it's so necessary mm. to have this right balance and especially in this time where you know you talk about showing you care and creating scalability and wanting to serve more clients and using technology to create efficiency and but we still have this human element of it you know how do you define as you've seen these metrics you know the best firms balance uh, using technology to create more efficiency, scale, accessibility, maybe, and also using human to create the relationship aspect, caring, comprehensive, consistency, whatever it may be from that standpoint.
0: Well, first of all, you can't extract humanity from advice. Just fundamentally. So this idea that you can you can have a digital experience with a human overlay to me is just completely untrue in the context of really holistic, great advice. But of course, digital is important. Digital is important in terms of, of, providing anywhere, anytime access. Digital is really important in terms of doing future casting, all those things. So I, listen, I think the reality is if you're going to deliver on a more valuable advice experience, a compelling and differentiated value proposition, which would be highly valued, right? So there's, there's revenue related to that. There's a cap to how much you can actually deliver that. Where digital comes in, the key thing to think about in digital, and this is against data that's been was published during my time at J.D. Power is out there on the public record, talks about how, you know, to what extent do people want digital from boomers all the way down to Gen Z for whether it's advice, whether it's planning or whether it's service. And the key message is with all generations, there's no generation that wants just one or the other. Boomers lean more human, but they still want digital. Younger generations lean more digital, but they absolutely still want human, and I think we see that that play out. So, and and there's two parts. Of this. Remember, there's the advice experience, and then there's the client experience. So, how much can you scale the client experience? And that's usually where technology technology stacks are. How can we create a better client experience, more efficient, more scalable? The advice experience is is you're in the kitchen, okay? You're making that phenomenal Italian meal. Can you systematize that and become Burger King? Probably not. There's going to be a limit to what you can do.
1: Yeah. Such great advice. Tom, you're, you're spot on. I mean, we could talk for hours here, but I I want to be cognizant of your time and the listeners time. And I'm super grateful of this conversation. It's been really, really eye-opening. before I let you go. I want to ask two questions and then, uh, like you, I have a thirst of, uh, I mean, I'm just a constant curiosity, a lifelong learner. I like to have these conversations because I like to learn from people that are much smarter than me. And another way I like to learn is through books. And so I always like to ask people, what's one of those books out there that you think everybody should read if they haven't or reread if you've already read it?
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to maybe break the rules and give you two. Is that all right? That's okay. I'll okay. let it happen. Just this one time. Yeah. Yeah. So the first one, I'll hold it up for those watching on, uh, on YouTube. It's called Helping. How to offer, offer, Give, and Receive Help. And it's actually written by an MIT professor named Edgar Schein. He is the father of modern organizational science. It is process consulting defined in a very user-friendly perspective. It gives the advice process. It gives a great overview and depth into the advice process and how to be executed in the advice profession versus just the sales profession. Highly recommended. Behind me on my shelf, you'll see I got a bunch of his very academic books as well. But the other one, and this, by the way, came back to that question about the 13 year old me. It's actually a book called The Dancing Wu Li Masters. So it's actually a very layman's perspective, an overview of what was written in the 70s called the New Physics or Quantum Theory. And the reason I think this is really important is many people think we're in the planning business and they equate planning to creating a certain path. The reality is, the moment we leave right now, The further out from this moment we get, the more uncertain the future becomes. And planning is not about planning for certainties, but instead it's about planning for contingencies and continuing to navigate a very uncertain path and very dynamic path forward. And this speaks to the actual science behind this. It's a really great book. And I pulled it. I'm going to reread it again. It's been quite a while. So those are the two books.
1: I love both of those. I may go on Amazon right now. I mean, I, I buy 95% of all the books, mm-hmm. but I don't already have them. And so that helping in that woolly one is, uh, I, the science one is uh, certainly interesting. I think that something I take away from this conversation before I get to the last question is is that challenging everyone to go and learn outside of our industry. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a big takeaway I have from this conversation with you, which I am a huge proponent of. And I, I appreciate you kind of waving that flag. And so with that, you know, I always ask, what's there, what's one actionable takeaway that you have that you think that the listeners can go and, and implore, or put into work tomorrow or today, and, and become better
0: in their business or their life or whatever it may be. Yeah, so um, I'll point to a quote for that, and one of my favorite ones, and it's the the truth will set you free. Right and I'll two points to that maybe is one is we do live in kind of a uh, duplicitous world, right, where the truth gets a little bit, sw- you know, a little bit squirrely at times. And I'm a firm believer that there's no better path forward than being just straightforward, honest, every moment in everybody's life, undoubtedly. And secondly, it's, it comes to knowing the truth about what your clients actually think about you as an advisor. If you don't know with certainty, then it's purely a guess. And it's better to find out that way than to to find out by an ACAT. So, yeah. yeah. And and the the last one, because I had two ready, right? Sorry. Is anybody that says you can't do it, that generally means double down.
1: Yeah, I love it. Tom <laughs> Raymond, this has been a really pleasure. I'm super honored to have met you through this conversation. I've learned a lot from you. And I'm the conversion from an introvert to an extrovert is seen here. And you're doing a great job of speaking for this industry. And I appreciate that. And I know there's a lot of people that are going to want to continue to follow you and, and get in touch and learn more about what you're doing at Practice Intel. So what's the best way for people to continue to follow you and to get in touch with you?
0: No, absolutely. I mean, one, they can get in touch with me just directly. It's tom at pracintel.com. So P-R-A-C intel.com. That's the same. That's our website. You can follow me on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody. This will take a village to change the industry, but changing our industry for the better, advancing the advice profession will have such profound effects. Imagine, Matt, waking up one day and having somebody go, oh, you're an advisor. How cool is that? Can we talk? Which is pretty much the exact opposite of what happens today. So, But Matt, I appreciate it, man. This has been fun.
1: Hey, I am yeah. right there with you, Tom. I'll be right, right alongside you waving that flag and super thankful for you, for your time and what you're doing in this industry. So uh, stay well, be well, and we will talk with you again soon here on Bridging the Gap. Hey, Matt, thanks so much. You as well. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think.